Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTS Net to Go. We hope you enjoy. We're so excited to have you here today. Um, we're very um, thrilled to have the entire CTS Net community available to join us for this webinar with some outstanding panelists. Um, my name is Mara Antonoff. I'm a thoracic surgeon at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and I'm joined by my co-moderator, Brian Mitzman, who's a thoracic surgeon with NYU Langone Health. We welcome you to live today to touch on an extremely important topic, um, managing crises, surviving the pandemic and resilience beyond. How do you cope when completely thrown out of your comfort zone? How do you handle the crisis professionally, taking care of patients, supporting a team, but also managing the personal stressors and burnout? Most importantly, when this is all over, how do you bounce back? We're thrilled to have three internationally known panelists with us today who will touch on all of these aspects of surviving a crisis. The format today will be a short presentation by each of the speakers, followed by a question and answer roundtable. As this is a live session, we invite all the viewers to submit questions through the Q&A function in Zoom. Let's get started with our first speaker. Dr. Reza Meron was born in Switzerland and attended McGill University in Montreal, Canada, where he received his medical degree, his master's of science, and a degree in experimental surgery. He completed his general and cardiothoracic residencies in Montreal prior to serving as a major in the Canadian Forces Medical Services from 1987 to 2006. In addition to his role as a professor of surgery at UTMD Anderson Cancer Center, he's a diving medical officer with experience running hyperbaric chambers. He commanded advanced surgical teams in armed conflicts, and he has extensive aviation experience flying both fixed wing and rotary wing aircrafts. I'm honored to welcome my friend and colleague, Dr. Meron. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for having me today with you. I'm gonna share my screen with you now and we're gonna get started. Okay, Mara, are you able to see my screen? Um, you're not sharing it at this moment. Um, let me fix this. Okay. Try, try again to share if possible. Mm -hmm. Let's try again. Perfect, we see them. Very good. All right, well, again, thank you very much and good morning to everyone. When managing a crisis, in order to avoid disorientation, always remember to focus on the mission. Our mission in medicine is simple. It is to deliver the best care possible to our patients. We have superb personnel to accomplish this, but it is also important to realize the limitations of each and protect the physical and psychosocial needs of these personnel. 
as a leader, be enthusiastic. The situation may be grave. It doesn't mean you have to be grave yourself. Lead by enabling and not by micromanaging. One of the ways to protect the personnel is to help them develop resilience. Resilience, is, nobody is born with resilience. Resilience comes with life experience and training, such as these monks in a monastery somewhere in Tibet. This is Johnny English. <clears throat> so resilience, when you try to uh, teach resilience in the armed forces, uh, we help people to develop the elements of the three eyes. We learned that I have a strong relationship, that I have a structure, I have rules at home, and I am a role model and I have role models. We learned that I'm a person with hope and faith, who cares about others, who is proud of oneself. We also learn, and this one is very important, we learn that I can communicate, solve problems, engage the temperament of others and seek good relationships. A crisis is not the time for personal conflicts. In a crisis, we must learn how to allocate resources, which are often limited. In this particular pandemic, we must protect our personnel from AGPs by proper fitting and distribution of PPEs, which could be scarce. The operating room is a limited and expensive resource that must be used effectively. We need to limit the OR time to essential surgeries, of course, guided by the governmental decrees. For the first two points, we created the daily meeting made of the chairs and the quality officers of every surgical speciality, and we went over all the cases scheduled every day. We had no hesitation to delay cases or ask surgeons to choose the procedures to match the new environment. For instance, we said no to robotic pancreatic duodenectomies, 10-hour surgeries, or pelvic exenterations. And also we said no to open tracheostomies in the ICU on COVID-19 patients. We must also optimize hospitalization time, leaving room at all time for the influx of more COVID-19 patients and avoid burnout. This is accomplished by the use of techniques learned from the ERAS protocols. We should emphasize more than ever proper teaching of the patients and their families and rely heavily on telemedicine. Two weeks ago, I coached a patient who lived 600 miles away how to remove a feeding tube on FaceTime. It went very well and this saved the patient a very long road trip. Relay of information down the chain of command is crucial. Like I mentioned, avoid micromanagement, but that means your people must understand the situation and what is expected from them. In this crisis, we recommend daily communications. Comms must be unambiguous and honest. If you don't know the answer, say you don't know, and you will look into it and do it. Finally, it is important in this new era to master the ethics of remote conferencing. This is the new future. Get on early to check the camera and the microphone. The comments, can you hear me, should be preferably asked before the start of the meeting. Then start on time and leave the meeting on time. The leader must become like an air traffic controller comes must be directed and loops closed. Open questions should be avoided, so you don't have a group of people all wanting to speak all at the same time. Very courteous, and not all ideas need to be heard today. Remember the three eyes. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much, Dr. Moran, for that wonderful uh, this, uh, introduction to our session. And um, we look forward to the next speaker. Dr. Moran, if we can ask you to stop sharing your screen. Great. Sure. Thank you. That was an excellent talk. Um, for all the participants that just joined us, uh, we are starting with short presentations from each of our panelists. We'll then move on to a question and answer session. If you have any questions for the panelists, please use the QA feature in Zoom and we'll do our best to incorporate all of your questions into the panel at the end. Our next speaker is Dr. Sasha Shilkut. She's a tenured professor of anesthesiology and vice chair in the Department of Anesthesiology at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. She's a cardiac anesthesiologist who holds national positions in the Society of Cardiovascular Anesthesiology and the National Board of Echocardiography. She's passionate about physician well-being and equity and is the founder of Brave Enough, a group dedicated to empowering and supporting women in their professional and personal lives. Dr. Shilka, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm gonna share my screen. Are you all able to see my screen? Thumbs up? Yes. Great. So the good news is I'm not going to tell you that your cases are canceled this morning or that you didn't do an adequate preoperative evaluation. Um, I'm going to hopefully encourage you. So uh, I, I'm a practicing cardiac anesthesiologist. I'm really passionate. I love being in the operating room. The reason I'm talking to you about resilience and burnout is I spent the first 10 years of my career researching different parts of echocardiography, mainly diastolic dysfunction, and then I burned out and I wanted to quit medicine altogether after a very successful career and NIH grant. And I thought, if this is happening to me, it's probably going to happen to other people. I need to really understand what well-being is and what resilience is. And so the last part of five years of my career, that's what I've been studying. So I'm honored to come and, and talk to all of you because you are some of my favorite people in the world, uh, cardiothoracic surgeons, and I can understand and I can really, um, I just wanna give you some encouragement today because what you're doing every day when you show up to work is, it, it requires immense amount of resilience. So I, my one disclosure is I'm the founder and owner of Brave Enough, and I wanna talk about some ways that we can actually develop resilience or that we can identify how we are resilient right now that can really help us in our mindset as we go through this pandemic and then leave you with some daily tips some practical tips i like to call this realistic resilience i think most of us that are practicing in the perioperative space right now feel like this i know certainly we felt like this as we saw all of our elective or semi-urgent cases being canceled or put down to the lower list a couple months ago. And for those of us who show up every day, put on scrubs and go to work and feel a sense of accomplishment when we take our patients to the ICU and we, we've gotten them through some tenuous procedure, I think this was really hard for us to figure out our purpose. I know I struggled for about a week and a half just feeling like, what is my purpose right now? Um, if I can't give an anesthetic or I can't take care of a patient and get them safely to the ICU, that was a huge burden for me to kind of figure out my purpose. And there's been a number of studies that I don't want to bore you with in, the, in these short 10 minutes 
that have looked at basically um, the uh, people in China, the healthcare workers in China, and have evaluated the psychological toll, the mental and physical toll of the last couple months. And basically what we're seeing from a physician standpoint is we're seeing increased physical and mental fatigue. And this can be very dichotomous to us because we may be spending most days like me today, my office days were being asked not to be on campus. So my office day is at home, but our home life is not very, let's say relaxing these days. If you're like me, I have four children upstairs that I just threatened um, not to get on Wi-Fi, not to uh, come downstairs and bother me. And we don't really have a sense of end and beginning to our work day. Um, so this is all causing ex extenuous physical and mental fatigue. And then we have stress and sleep disturbances. And this is really important because I talk to a lot of my colleagues, my surgical colleagues and anesthesia colleagues, and I'm like, how are you doing today? And they're like, I'm okay, but I'm just having really weird dreams. Well, these are called COVID dreams. And what we know is that our brains right now are having a hard time turning off. And that's because we are on information overload. So what we did yesterday, how we took care of patients yesterday, how we even transported them from the ICU to the OR is now different today. And we have to be on top of it. We have to stay on top of all of the information that's coming at us. And this is causing our brains to go into overdrive. So even if we're sleeping more than we slept three or four months ago, we're not resting. So this is a big sign. If you feel like you're waking up at three in the morning and you're having really vivid dreams or you're making a list for yourself like I do at three in the morning, um, this is probably a sign of stress and it's mental stress. And we know from the studies of the healthcare workers in China that we're having increased um, exacerbations of mental health crisis. We're having increased um, substance abuse and numbing behaviors. And I'm going to talk about what those are because they're really, really important for us to look out for one another. So we have this information overload. We have occupational hazard stress. I mean, this is kind of my typical patient in the, in the middle picture here. But what we don't appreciate is it's not all of our colleagues' typical patient, and yet it may be, or they may be having to do things that they're not used to doing. I know for myself, being a cardiac anesthesiologist, I'm on the top of the list to be called to the ICU to take care of pods of patients, COVID patients. And so I've had to train in the ICU, even though I'm not an intensivist. And that was stressful for me just to think about how I would document and how I would bill and how I would go back to my internal medicine days and figure all of this out. So I think we have a lot of people around us that are also pretty raw and stressed. Some of our most you know, professional and most gritty resilient physicians are faced with a new normal. And then some, many of us are having limited resources, longer hours, you know, there's a lot of diversity on how we are taking care of or how we're seeing COVID patients depending on the region of the world that we live in. So this is what I really wanna drive home. We tend to think of resilient people as, and resilient you know, surgeons and anesthesiologists as people who are like super tough, they walk in every morning, you know, they've had their black coffee, they don't even bother with half and half. You know, they may have taken a protein shake because they're gonna be in the OR for 16 hours and they never break scrub, but that's not true. The studies that have looked at the most resilient surgeons, and I, I can tell you because I've read all the documents, they actually experience guilt. They experience guilt because maybe they um, are having fear of taking care of a certain case or a certain patient. They experience grief just as much as non-resilient people, people that burn out and quit medicine. They experience sleep disturbances, and they have varying degrees of stress in one day. So I say this to you because you may be listening and you may be thinking, what is wrong with me? 
why can't, why am I struggling today to focus or why am I having a hard time? And I feel like I'm going to either uh, get angry or maybe get emotional um, in an interaction that three months ago wouldn't have bothered me. Well, it's because you're, you're in a world right now of unknown and stress. It doesn't mean you're not resilient. You can be resilient. You probably are resilient. And so give yourself a little pat on the back and just affirm yourself right now. Because what I see is we often give ourselves a secondary guilt for not being perfect or not having it all together every day. So I want to encourage you now, this is, I want you to go inward. We very rarely do this in medicine. Okay. We don't even like to talk about going inward because we think it's like belongs in psychiatry and it's fluffy, but the truth is this is not a sprint. This is a marathon. And we really, really need to check our own pulse if we're going to make it through the next several months, because what we see now is people now are actually more stressed, more worried. Physicians are more stressed than they were three months ago because we know this isn't ending because we know we're gonna to have to now kind of slowly turn up the light and go back into society. And yet, how do we do that and keep ourselves and our patients safe? So the first thing I wanna tell you to do, this is what I've started doing. When I pull into the doctor's garage and I park my car, I put my hands on the steering wheel and I take a minute before I get out of my car. And I do a mental check and I go, okay, how am I feeling? Am I anxious? Am I angry? Am I irritated? Because I don't wanna bring that into my team. And I kind of do five deep breaths. And then I think about three things that I'm grateful for. And I call it my mindful minute. I just sit there with my hands on the steering wheel and I, I take a pause. I ask myself how I'm sleeping. I've actually started recording my sleep, which I've never done in all 45 years of my life. Um, because I recognized that there were several weeks where I was not getting good sleep. And I didn't, I thought, well, I've been laying in this bed for seven hours, but I, I should, I should be fine. I slept for seven hours, but I actually wasn't sleeping. So I think that is also a sign if you're having those vivid dreams, if you're not sleeping well, it's okay to have varying degrees of stress in one day. That's also a sign that maybe you're under stress when you're okay at 8am, but then you're really angry at 11am. Laughter's okay. I think that we all need to embrace that we can still find joy in our day. I know the other day I was laughing in the OR with a surgeon and everybody in the room kind of paused and looked at us like we were, you know, doing something illegal. <laughs> it's okay to find joy right now. And then this has been doing that I think is really helpful. We know that physicians specifically who can identify a purpose, have a purpose and do meaningful work for them. They actually have longevity of their career. If you can find work that's meaningful for you. So I've been trying to give myself three daily goals. These are my daily goals yesterday. I'm going to have a mindful work day. What does that mean? I'm actually going to write down when I'm working. And I've never done this again until lately. I've never kept track of my hours, but I recognized a couple of weeks ago that I was working three days in the OR and two days at home. And I still worked about 80 hours because my home days, I had no on and off switch. I, I, and I thought, why am I so tired? I had two days at home this week, but I worked 80 hours. So it was really eye-opening for me to go, okay, I have to actually set my own limits when I'm at home. And I have to take breaks every few hours and get up and go outside, take a walk, have a meal, um, and just set a limit to when I turn off my computer at night. My day, daily goals, a meal with my family. I'm going to try to enjoy a meal with my family. And then I'm going to try to journal for 15 minutes. This is not like I'm going to write a COVID protocol on you know, airway, blah, blah, blah. These are, these are type of the things that we think of when we're overachievers, but I think we need to just break it down to simple goals. 
So what can you do right now to maintain your well-being and to increase your resilience? Number one, do meaningful work for you. Number two, we talked about the sleep hygiene. It's so important. I was just talking to a sleep specialist last week, and she was telling me that they're getting a ton of questions about this um, because no one is really practicing good sleep hygiene because we're on our screens until 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night when we, follow, when we finally turn it off. If there's only a minute between turning off your phone and closing your eyes, that's not good sleep hygiene. So she recommends everyone having at least 30 minutes to kind of calm down, turn off the news, turn off the screen, turn off the computer, kind of come back to a sense of rest before going to bed. Get outside, it's pretty simple. There's tons of research that if you spend 15 minutes outside a day, it actually increases your endorphins. Hard for us in the ORs oftentimes to even see outside. So sometimes I've been just going to a window at the hospital and just sitting in the sun. Don't underestimate community. This is really important. When you start to feel overwhelmed, then what happens is you withdraw. And it's a protective measure. We all do it. We withdraw from our colleagues, our friends. We don't even want to give eye contact to someone walking down the hallway. It's too much. Heaven forbid they stop and ask us how we're doing. So these are all signs that you're starting to withdraw. And that's actually the worst time for you to withdraw. You don't have to go out and you know throw a party, but you need to reach out to one work colleague that you can connect with. Beware of numbing. This is so huge. Uh, numbing is drinking a lot at night because you don't want to talk to anybody in your family or your loved ones or your friends because you're mentally exhausted. So you find yourself secu secluded away drinking alone. Um, eating just because you're emotionally exhausted or you're stressed. That's a numbing behavior. Mindless Netflix. There's nothing wrong with watching some binge watching sometimes. <laughs> but if you find yourself doing these behaviors because you literally don't want to turn off your brain. Those are all things that actually are not healing, but they can cause more stress and obviously negative behaviors. And then control what you can. And what do I mean by that? Well, we can't control a lot of things right now, but we can control how we see ourselves. I love the first lecture about I can and I am. Um, I've been trying to do some very basic things just to remind myself that I'm okay. I'm gonna make it through this. I'm doing the best I can. And I keep telling myself, I'm doing enough, I'm doing enough, I'm doing enough. And it's okay to kind of pull back from all the things that you're being asked to do right now if you feel that sense of overwhelming and just give yourself immense grace. So thank you for listening and I hope I gave you all some encouragement today. Thank you so much, Dr. Shilkut, for that outstanding presentation. Um, so many wonderful things for us to think about. Appreciated. I guess I'll have to chat with you offline what it means for those of us who make lists at three in the morning, whether it's a pandemic or not, but that's, I guess, a conversation <laughs> for another day. Um, I'm really delighted to uh, uh, introduce our third speaker who rounds out our panel discussion today. Um, before I introduce Dr. Mattis, I would like to mention to our participants who are joining us, we're so grateful to have you here. Um, we've, um, we're so fortunate to have these three outstanding um, internationally known uh, speakers sharing their expertise regarding um, crisis management and resilience and um, getting through um, any type of crisis, but especially a pandemic. Um, as um, you're listening to Dr. Mattis speak, I would encourage any of you who have questions that you would like us to address um, to uh, enter them through the Q&A function on Zoom. So without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and introduce Dr. Mattis. Um, Dr. Mattis graduated from the University of Minnesota Medical School, where he also trained in general surgery from 1982 to 1990. 
After two years of thoracic surgical training at the University of Toronto, he returned to the University of Minnesota in 1992, where he remained there until his retirement in 2012. Um, I actually had the privilege of meeting him there in 2002, almost 18 years ago is what I was just realizing. Um, since 2012, Dr. Mattis has focused his efforts on the scientific study of personal resilience and uh, the role of human connection and leadership. I'm really thrilled to be able to introduce Dr. Mattis to you today. So um, Dr. Mattis, um, if you would be able to share your screen, we look forward to your presentation. Thank you, Mara. It's an honor to be here. Uh, so as Winston Churchill said, if you're going through hell, keep going. There's not only a COVID epidemic, but there's a pandemic of uncertainty in our lives at this time. And we have no idea for how long. That uncertainty is the worst uncertainty. For surgeons, there's another uncertainty problem with loss of control over what cases you can do, your compensation, your teams, and even the days that you can work. The list goes on. The only certainty right now is uncertainty. The human mind does not like uncertainty. It craves predictability and stability. And since the quality of our minds determines absolutely the quality of our lives, uncertainty can be bad news for the quality of our lives. The first step in the battle with uncertainty is not to battle it. Instead, accept it completely. The formula pain times resistance equals suffering is one of my favorite mental gardening tools. Resist reality, you know, for example, by complaining, judging, or avoiding, or as Sasha said, said numbing, and you and those around you will suffer. This pandemic is an opportunity to build that muscle of getting comfortable with uncertainty. Then, after accepting reality, the best way to manage the quality of our minds, no matter the circumstances, is to take control of the biochemistry of our brains, just like we take control of an operation with our knowledge and skills. In the pre-COVID era, when we all had plans and goals for the future, our brains have been producing dopamine and norepinephrine together. Dopamine fuels our motivation to pursue plans and goals. Dopamine points our minds like an arrow outward into the world. Norepinephrine is the molecule that gets us excited and activated to pursue those goals. Dopamine motivates, norepinephrine activates. But now in the COVID era of uncertainty, so many of our goals and pursuits have ground to a halt and so is our brain dopamine levels. But uncertainty also creates serious levels of stress. This stress increases the levels of norepinephrine in the brain. All alone and without dopamine, norepinephrine now creates anxiety and agitation. The solution? Well, get your brain dopamine levels up. But how? By creating clear goals despite the uncertainty and doing something every day to move towards those goals, just like Sasha, Sasha said. It doesn't matter what the goals are, as long as you can assign meaning to them. In other words, they must matter to you. Meaning is the ignition for the dopamine engine. It's how Navy SEALs get through Hell Week, at least the ones that make it. The aspirational goal of becoming a SEAL and not quitting 
means everything to them, but they focus on the small incremental things that move them forward one chunk at a time. The next run, the next pool session. The ones who make it aren't the biggest or the toughest. They are the ones who won't quit and who can focus on the task at hand. I set three aspirational goals for myself during this time. First, to improve the quality of resident medical presentations, desperately needed in my opinion. Second, to have a clutter-free house. And third, to improve my aerobic fitness. So I created a plan for teaching residents at the University of Pittsburgh to learn how to give better presentations. A plan for cleaning out our house after 30 years of living. And I set up a Peloton endurance riding plan. The key to getting your brain dopamine levels up is to have an aspirational goal and to execute on a daily basis. This process is called objectives and key results or OKRs. It's the exact process that turned Intel and Google into a powerhouses. It's vital, in my opinion, to make a written list at the start of every day of what to do that day in small chunks and to do your best to do them. No list and it doesn't exist. The act of writing the list and checking things off when done boosts brain dopamine levels. That's why it feels so good. But there's another set of brain reward chemicals, the here and now chemicals. Serotonin, oxytocin, endorphins, and endocannabinoids. They are released when we take the time to experience the here and now, the things right in front of us. Things like, as Sasha said, again, writing three things in a gratitude journal that you're grateful for petting your dog, conversation with a loved one or friend, connecting, cooking a meal, reading, or cuddling with a loved one. Being present to what is in front of you and savoring it. All this stuff is not a bunch of woo-woo, it's a bunch of science. I think of the brain as being like a luxury car that is there to take us on a trip, and the trip is your life. If you're lucky enough, it'll be a long trip, so you want to be sure that it's running and functioning well. And you keep your brain in the best biochemical shape possible by eating a whole foods diet, getting seven, eight hours of sleep at night, and with regular exercise and movement. Then on the road of life, no matter the route or the weather, you need to have aspirational goals and destinations to stoke the fires of the dopamine engine. It gives meaning to our lives. But while you're en route and inside the car, don't zone out. Intentionally take the time to enjoy the trip by rewarding yourself with the here and now chemicals, by paying attention to the scenery, by connecting with others on the journey with you, and by being grateful for having a car and a place to travel to. We evolved these two reward systems for a reason. So we have the drive to pursue things that aid our survival and to be able to recover, rest, and take stock. The, conscious ability, the intentional and conscious ability to toggle between the two reward systems is the path that leads to optimal performance, no matter the circumstances. Thanks. Dr. Mattis, that was a great talk. Thank you so much. Thank you to the rest of the panelists. We are going to move on to our question, question and answer session now. While we do have some prepared questions, I again emphasize to all of our viewers that if there's anything you'd like to ask the panelists, please submit through the uh, QA panel and we'll do our best to incorporate them. This first question, I'm gonna start off with you, Dr. Moran. For the physicians on the front line of the pandemic, many of us hold leadership uh, roles on teams. 
Moreover, during a worldwide health crisis, healthcare workers may also take on roles of leadership within our communities. Surviving a crisis is one thing, but leading a team through a crisis is an even greater challenge. Can you and the rest of our panelists comment on some of the important tips for actually leading through a crisis? Thank you, Brian. Um, this is an important question. I like to always bring things to the basic elements. This is the best way I, I find to guide myself and also the people I'm leading. In this particular situation we're in right now, I would say focus on the mission and help your personnel to achieve the objective you have asked them to reach. Find ways for your personnel to navigate around the obstacles. This is part of the enabling I was talking to you earlier on without actually doing the work for them. Because again, you don't want to micromanage your team members. So I'll start with that. Great. As a uh, you know, leader at your hospital, Dr. Shilkut, especially as a cardiac anesthesiologist where you have to control the room, do you have any tips for, for leading a team? Well, I loved Ray's as um, breaking it down to the mission. Um, one of the things that I think I've been trying to do is over communicate. <laughs> so I think sometimes we think, well, we've already said that today, or we've already explain this once and we get frustrated when we have to explain it again or just affirm something again. Um, but as a leader in my institution right now, I think I'm trying really hard to over communicate. Um, so if I think I've said it once, I just say it again and again and uh, give everyone grace to, to just not get frustrated if I find myself communicating the same material. Um, I also think it's really important that we as leaders uh, live by example. And so if I find myself getting frustrated or angry about something and snapping, just apologizing in front of the team and saying, you know, I'm, ask, I'm, I, I'm sorry that I was short. I'm under a little bit of stress right now trying to teach a third grader word problems. I don't know how to do that. And I probably was a little stressed today more than I should have been. So Thank you everyone for forgiving me because I think it's really important that we demonstrate as leaders that we're not perfect and that we too um, mess up at times and have to ask forgiveness for our teams. It, it opens up that line of communication. Great. That's, that's terrific. Dr. Shilkat, that actually leads into um, uh, another question that we have for, for you all. Um, maybe Dr. Mattis, if you'd be able to help address this for us. Um, during a crisis, as we've heard from all of our panelists, clear communication is really important. And we know this is true, not just in the operating room, it's true in aviation, on the battlefield, um, in any other environment in, in which we really need to um, get through a challenging situation. So in the midst of this pandemic, we really have all been overloaded with information from every direction. And while on one side, it's, it's terrific to hear information from your cardiovascular anesthesiologist in the operating room, we're also getting information from experts, non-experts, emails from every organization that we know, um, all sorts of social media influx of, of information. I'm curious, is there a such thing as too much communication? And how does this play into team dynamics? Certainly, we want people to receive adequate information, but is it possible to give them too much? What do you think, Dr. Mattis? My God, it's absolutely possible to get too much. Uh, immediately when this started, I realized I needed to go on an information diet. So I created clear boundaries about what I was willing to look at uh, in regards to the news and, and, and not get sucked into that vortex of material, which is only putting me further into the weeds and into the quicksand of this uh, nightmare. So that was number one on a personal level. 
I think uh, Reza hits it beautifully in terms of, you know, the mission and that. And I, I look at this even again through the, you know, the outward bound dopamine molecules and the here and now molecules in terms of leadership and, and communication, because what everybody wants is purpose. We all want to have meaning in what we're doing. And if we're just grinding and it doesn't feel, this is where burnout comes from. If we're just grinding and hammering through stuff and there's no sense of purpose communicated or imbued into the people in the organization through our communication, then it, it's just a grind. It just becomes a grind. We're all willing to tolerate a grind when there's a sense of meaning and purpose to it. Uh, and then on, on the second side of the here and now molecules, I mean, we have to take those moments. This is the hard part because when the pressure and the demands and the pace and the information coming at you is so intense, it just, it, it just seems to be no time to do the here and now stuff. But this is like something you have to do intentionally and with other people in the organization so that they feel their humanity and connected to us, you know, and to you. So this is just, it's got to be deeply intentional on the part of leadership. And in terms of specifics of communication, I'm a big believer in Brene Brown's, you know, clear as kind, you know, notion. Uh, clarity with honesty, but being, you know, uh, thoughtful and uh, considerate of who you're talking to, but not hiding elements of reality because it makes you uncomfortable to communicate those things. And then the other thing is use simple language, you know, uh, really no, no jargony stuff in the world of, you know, medicine, which we're loaded with. And as an example, I mean, I, I love uh, Governor uh, Cuomo's, you know, this, this simplicity of his language, it, it not only provides us with the sense of purpose, but the clarity of it, and we know what to do. Stay home, stop the spread, save lives. And as Sasha said, say it again and again and again and again and again and again. And again right. Yeah. You know, as a, uh, as a New Yorker, I definitely echo that sentiment, Dr. Mattis. I look forward to his, uh, to Governor Cuomo's uh, press announcements really every day. Because like you said, they're very simplistic and it just gets the point across to everybody here. Real leadership. Dr. Moran, uh, so when the pandemic ends, and to everyone out there, it will end, um, <laughs> many physicians will just go back to their normal routine, unaware of how you know, the previous several months treating these patients, potentially working in hot zones, have really affected them, uh, especially for those in the hot zones. This is, it's been a traumatizing event, whether you know, each individual healthcare worker realizes it or not. Do you have any thoughts or recommendations for adjusting back to normal life and routine clinical practices? Yes, thank you, Brian. Well, what I would recommend is to start slowly. You know, it's not going to be business as usual on D-Day. It's going to be, you have to go slowly. Watch for burnout and depressive symptoms. We're physicians, we can recognize them, but particularly let's watch for those symptoms on people who may not be mindful of these things. Uh, some of our nursing personnel, for instance, our residents, trainees. And uh, let's learn to deal with grief and regrets. Those are the most important elements that comes to hunt people with PTSD. Soldiers coming from the battle zone, they, they, most often if you ask them, why do you feel like this? And they, 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 the thinking is that, well, I could have saved the life of my partner who just got blown apart just beside me. I, I could have done that and I didn't do it. And now because of this constant regret, um, they, they're haunted by it. So we have to learn to deal with that grief and that regret. And this is not 
and this is best accomplished for us by talking and by sharing our grief and our sentiments uh, with those we trust and uh, people who can listen to us without being judgmental. I, I certainly have a group of colleagues, actually all of my colleagues, and I go around all of them on a regular basis so I don't burn them out with my thoughts and feelings. <laughs> but um, I, I go around and I, and I share my frustrations of the day. And I want to hear about how, how would have, they would have managed those uh, situations themselves. And just this sharing process is very important. But also remember, if you, if you start developing the signs, symptoms of burnout and depression, you know, there's nothing wrong seeking help. Most institutions have um, hotlines for the personnel to, 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 to reach out for the day where, you know, things are really impossible, where I, can't, I just can't sleep anymore at night, where I just don't eat, or maybe I have suicidal ideations. Um, these things uh, needs to be addressed and never buried. Uh, they should come up to the surface and people have to be honest with themselves and have no fear to express these feelings. That's really terrific, Dr. Moran. It actually leads in very nicely to uh, my next question. Um, you know, in, in recent years, we have all become more aware of physician burnout and stressors and concerning implications on attrition from our careers, depression, anxiety, addiction, not to mention the impact on our personal relationships, which can actually be quite dramatic. Um, this pandemic certainly has increased those types of stressors for healthcare workers. And to some degree, it may actually be important to recognize and accept that it's appropriate and normal to not be okay right now. Um, so I think, you know, it's an interesting balance, recognizing that it's okay to not be okay, but there may be a line where we do need to recognize that someone needs something a little extra or needs additional help. So how do we know for ourselves or our colleagues when we or they may have crossed a, crossed a threshold that we really need to be more worried and what are those signs? I know Dr. Shilkut, you told us about a lot of the things that all of us are sort of experiencing right now. Um, can you tell us, Dr. Shilkut, what, what are the things that if you're experiencing them, you might need more help or do we all need help? I mean, can you help us answer that a little bit? Sure, well, if you think about it, and I love that I can use this analogy to all of you smart surgeons um, who understand myocytes. Um, so if you think of stress and the stress that you're under, that's like an EF of 75, okay? Um, maybe you have a tight valve, an aortic stenosis, and you're, you're like hyper-functioning. So those people are the, are the physicians that are you know, running through the hallways. They don't have time to talk to you. Um, they got to get the case done. Um, they don't want. They don't want to chit chat. They they they're hyper focused. Um, and those people um, just probably need a little R and R, and probably need you to say, "Hey, what's going on? How are you doing? What's stressing you out these days?" Burned out people are like the EF of ten percent that are going for the VAD. Okay, there's like two myocytes, Bob and Joe, and they're kind of working. Okay. They don't have any energy. They're withdrawn. They may have been the person before that, you know, stopped to talk to you and now they don't even give you eye contact. They're literally in survival mode and they can't handle a conversation, a meeting, a committee, a webinar, anything. And those people are at risk. And I think it's really important also to understand the differences in gender in physician burnout, in how we express it, because we're all on the spectrum somewhere of stress or burnout. You know, it just depends on which direction we're going. It's really impossible to do our jobs and not experience stress and burnout sometimes. But men typically get angry. That's their first expression. 
So this may be the surgeon that typically is pretty chill and now they're all of a sudden just having micro explosions. Um, and I used to just be like, gosh, that guy's a jerk. And now I think, gosh, I'm really concerned about him. And so we have conversations and I look out for our surgeons. They look out for me. They see this in me too. Versus women, we tend to just emotionally withdraw. We have a flat affect. We don't want to laugh anymore. We don't want to talk anymore. And I think it's really important that we recognize that in one another so we can be battle buddies. So we can look out for one another instead of shaming or judging that we can just, hey, hey, how are, how are things going at home? When was the last time you got to have dinner with your family? I was just talking to one of my surgical colleagues the other day who said, I have not been home and had a meal in five days. And he was on edge and I could tell. And I just affirmed him and said, take it, take time, like set the boundary and take time. You get to do that. You are really important to our organization and we, we want you to be here for the long term. That insight is, is really fantastic. I really appreciate that. And the differentiation of how different people may express burnout is, is really important for us all um, to be aware of. Dr. Mattis, we'd love your insight on this question as well. Um, do you have any thoughts? Well, uh, you know, from my own personal experience, uh, I remember so well, uh, not really, this is one of the problems. There's two problems. One, uh, the culture of surgery, right? And, and the culture uh, and the, the habits and the mindset that we are imbued with in our training. And that is to keep going no matter what. And, and, and it puts you in this position of when you start to feel kind of like crap and you wonder what's going on. And as, uh, as Sasha said, the guilt and you know that stuff is there. And then I remember thinking, what the hell's wrong with me? I'm being weak, you know, come on, buck it up, move on, move forward. And I, I could not for the life of me understand what was wrong because contextually, I had everything that somebody would want in life, a great house, you know, kids, healthy, great job, money, all that stuff. But yet I wasn't feeling really good, you know? And so this was an enigma to me. So that, that, that's one thing. And then, you know, the, so the, the ability to even recognize it in yourself. And then secondly, uh, to, to, to be able to actually execute on doing something about it. Uh, you know, to, to say no and step out of the, of the line of fire. I mean, this is what they do in the military. It's, it's, it's all well-established. We, we have to do that, but the surgical culture imbues us with this notion of always have to be on, always have to be doing it. And it's true, you can't do that. We can be very high-functioning, performing individuals, but we've got to take that time to take care of business on the side. Thank you, Dr. Madison. I completely agree. In surgery, we're taught to have grit and be stoic. And sometimes it's very hard to turn off and say it's okay to, to take some time. Yeah. This next question uh, is very important to me as someone who's only you know been out of training for a few years. And I personally have, you know, still have a lot of friends that are fellows and residents. And we're, we're very lucky to have an expert in, in uh, empowerment on our panel, Dr. Shilkut. So I'm gonna direct this one towards you. Uh, as attending surgeons were asked to volunteer to treat COVID patients, and I say volunteer a little loosely, um, and run you know, COVID intensive care units and, and step out of our comfort zone. Trainees don't have that option, and many may feel uncomfortable saying no to specific tasks that may put them in harm's way. What are some tips for residents, fellows, any trainee that may be put in situations that they're not comfortable with, but really don't see an alternative? That's a great question. Um, 
I think what we know from the data about organizational effectiveness and well cultures, and I think this is part of having a well culture, is when you are asked to do something by a supervisor or a person in power that you are stressed or you don't feel comfortable or you don't feel protected, if you have a group of people or a, an outlet to express your fears and talk through them, your people are willing to go through the fire. <laughs> I mean, they really are. Um, cultures that understand that will often say like, say, okay, we have to lay off this many nurses due to this whatever. Um, we're gonna kind of crowdsource, pull everybody in and figure out what, what, how we're gonna do this, but also what are the fears of the people who remain? and how are we gonna talk through this? The cultures that understand the fear of their employer employees, um, the, the leaders that understand that, they will maintain, those, those people will stick with the organization, they will stick through thick and thin. And I think that our residents, I think that we are you know, shortchanging them by saying, we have to do this, you have to do this, and not expecting to them to have fear or have an outlet to express those and also work through that. Because I think most of them will rally and show up and do what is asked of them if they feel supported and protected. All of us will. Um, I mean, all of us can probably think of times when we've had to do something we've never done before in medicine, uh, whether it's three in the morning, um, or three in the afternoon and we're going, oh my gosh, I've never done this. I don't know how to do this. What normally gets you through? Calling a senior attending or calling someone and saying like, I'm, I've never done this. This is my plan. Does this sound like what you're gonna do? And so I think to ask trainees to do something that's new and beyond what many of us are being asked to do and not have that outlet. So one of the things we're doing is having weekly kind of touch base, how are things going? What are the fears? How can we talk about them? Just that is empowering to people because they feel like they're being, they're seen and they're valued. Can I make a comment, uh, Brian, on this? I, I, I agree with Sasha. One of the things I regret about the management uh, academically of this crisis is the fact that we cut the medical students and the residents from exposure to our the threat we were on every day, just on the basis, well, it's dangerous, we don't want to expose you. I mean, initially we had the issues with the PPEs, where I know that some institution did not have enough PPEs for the medical students. But you know what, we, we cut a, a valuable experience opportunity for these young individuals who eventually will have to deal with similar situations in the past, in the future, I mean. I mean, how do, you, how do we teach triage to people? How do we teach threat and comfort in a difficult environment? How do we teach empathy if we don't allow people to be in a difficult environment? Because it's bound to happen again. You know, if you work in the emergency room and then suddenly you have a busload of people all broken in pieces and you now you have to do a triage. If you've never been in a situation like this before, you're gonna panic and you're gonna make mistakes. I regret not having our medical students here. We could have put them at the entrance points of the hospital and do triage uh, uh, calls. Why not? They could have done beautiful works. I think it's, it's interesting different perspectives about how we involve trainees. Certainly, um, it's important to recognize that they want to be a part of the team and we need to find a way to make them feel welcome, feel like they're making a difference and um, to lead by example, but also be supportive to the different needs of trainees now that maybe 
may be very different than what they might have been in the past or outside of this type of environment. Um, I'm so grateful for all the wonderful conversation we've had and we've gotten through a number of really interesting questions, um, but I do want to be respectful of our time as the hour is wrapping up. I'm wondering if each of the panelists would be able to just share a brief closing thought with our audience members. Um, Dr. Mattis, would you like to begin? Well, um, you know, I guess the, the thing that I've applied in my life uh, when I hit the wall uh, was uh, to take on these uh, things that I've talked about today with the same level of sort of surgical, uh, the same kind of surgical approach that I did to become, you know, a master surgeon. And, and that took intention discipline and commitment. And, and I'm firmly convinced uh, based on my own experience and working with a group of surgeons here that by uh, displaying that same intention, discipline and commitment to, you know, the goals of having meaning in your life and the here and now elements and being able to toggle between them, that that can clearly and dramatically lead to a significant uptick in contentment and enjoyment of life. Uh, there's no question about it. So that's, I guess, my, my leading thought. Dr. Moran, can you give us some closing thoughts? Well, you're going to think I'm a hippie, but um, I'm going, my closing <laughs> thoughts are going to be this. Be in love with you, be in love with your colleagues, and be in love with your patients, and don't let COVID-19 come between any of you. Great. I would just encourage everyone to just show themselves a lot of grace right now. <laughs> I keep telling myself I'm, I'm doing okay and I've done enough for today. Um, I think there's, a, uh, there's so much we could do right now. And I think we have to take our own pulse and just remind ourselves every day that what, what we're doing is enough and that we are enough. I'd agree more with that. It's certainly something I need to work on damn near every day. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> well, thank you all so much. This has been a fantastic discussion. We've gained so much from your enormous experience and expertise. We're, we're grateful for your uh, insight that you shared with our audience members today. Welcome. Thank, thank you for you, having Brian. me. Thank you, Brian, Sasha, and Reza. Thank you for listening to CTS Net to Go, your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTS Net by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTS Net Video, by following at ctsnet.org on Twitter or by liking CTS Net's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTS Net to Go. Have a great day.